Lord God, we do thank you for your goodness and for your greatness. Thank you for this message of the house church and the victories that you are, we're seeing in, uh, in small ways, in personal ways in our lives. And I thank you that you are over, over in charge of that. There's something going on, something going on in individual lives and in the house churches. I also pray that we can see big picture things too. And we can see these big realms of spiritual um, forces um, going on in this world. And as we look at that, we can recognize that you are still in charge. That this is still a plan about you and what you have done through Jesus. And what you are going to do through Jesus. And that we don't lose hope. But we can always trust in you no matter what we see. So I pray for this uh, uh, message and um, the words of Daniel, and I pray that that would cut to our hearts and help us in some way to this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so uh, chapter 8 is a vision, um, and we will, we will get into that vision. But we, right now, live in a time in 2017 where most of us have access to information about the world around us. With this information, we can read and hear powerful and sometimes evil things happening around the globe. Whether we look at the Middle East, we can look at North Korea, we can look at Russia, we can look at United States. Uh, it's easy to despair and fear darkness in this world and the darkness to come in this world, especially if you have children. What is their world going to look like? Whether we look at the powerful countries, whether we look at powerful rulers, whether we look at destructive ideologies, or if we look at violent-filled religions, or changes in philosophy in our own culture, it's easy at this moment in time to feel that the end is near. And it may well be. The end could be very close to being here. But history and scripture in Daniel chapter 8 um, warn us that there has always been powerful rulers. There has always been dangerous ideologies in this world that stand against Christ, and many of which harm, cause great harm to the people of God. Our hope is in an everlasting kingdom and a power that is greater than any earthly power. And we should be able to live uh, and wait in the midst of darkness with hope. And I believe Daniel is going to speak to this hope that we have in chapter 8. Um, I would like to um, read um, from Daniel. I'm not going to put the words on the board, uh, on the PowerPoint. But I, if you have a Bible, take that out. I encourage you to do that. I think there's some Bibles in the back someplace too, or if your phone. Uh, it's nice to be able to look at the words and I'm going to read through them, but you may need to just look back and remind yourself what some of the words were. Uh, so it's a help, help, helpful thing to be able to look at the words. I'm going to read from the New International Version because this vision, the language gets kind of strange and uh, the um, ESV version is a little bit harder to read. So I'm going to read from the, from the New International Version. Chapter 8, I'm going to break this up a little bit. We're going to read, it tells you a vision, and then it gives you the interpretation of the vision. I'm going to break up the vision into two parts. I'm going to read the first part of the vision and its interpretation. And then later, we'll read the second part of the vision and its interpretation. So Daniel 8, 1 through 8. 
In the third year of King Belshazzar's reign, I, Daniel, had a vision after the one that had already appeared to me, which Lawrence will preach on next week. In my vision, I saw myself in the citadel of Susa, in the province of Elam. In the vision, I was standing by the Ulai Canal. I looked up, and there before me was a ram with two horns standing beside the canal, and the horns were long. One of the horns was longer than the other, but grew up later. I watched the ram as he charged towards the west and the north and the south. No animal could stand against him, and none could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great." As I was thinking about this, suddenly a goat with a prominent horn between his eyes came from the west, crossing the whole earth without touching the ground. He came toward the two-horned ram I had, san- I had seen standing, um, that I had standing beside the canal and charged at him with great rage. I saw him attack the ram furiously, striking the ram and shattering his two horns. The ram was powerless to stand against the goat. The goat knocked him to the ground and trampled on him, and none could rescue the ram from his power. The goat became very great, but at the height of his power, his large horn was broken off. And in the place, four prominent horns grew up towards the four winds of heaven. Now we're going to skip to uh, verse 15 and read the interpretation of that section of the vision. While I, Daniel, was watching the vision and trying to understand it, there before me stood one who looked like a man. And I heard the man's voice from the Ulai calling, Gabriel, tell this man the meaning of the vision. And as he came near the place where I was standing, I was terrified and I fell prostrate. Son of man, he said, understand that the vision concerns the end of time. And while he was speaking to me, I was in a deep sleep and my face to the ground. Then he touched me and raised me to my feet. He said, I'm going to tell you what will happen later in the time of wrath because the vision concerns the appointed time of the end. The two-horned ram that you saw represents the kings of Media and Persia. The shaggy goat is the king of Greece, and the large horn between his eyes is the first king. The four horns that replace the one that was broken off represent four kingdoms that will emerge from this nation but will not have the same power. So here is one of the most clear prophecies in the Bible because it's explained exactly what this is, this is referring to. We have a ram with two horns and we have a goat and a flying goat um, coming uh, towards the ram. The ram is Persia and Mede, uh, the Persian Empire, Persian, Persia and the Medes. Um, and uh, Daniel is writing this to the... In, in ba- while the Israelites were exiled in Babylon, and this is, Persia is going to be the kingdom that takes over Babylon. The second, um, the goat, is the Greek Empire. And it has one, the, the, the large single horn we can clearly see in history was Alexander the Great. Perhaps one of the greatest conquerors who swept through uh, many nations, conquering them, and finally taking over the, the Persian Empire so that the Persian Empire fell. And in its place uh, was the Greek Empire. But Alexander the Great died, and in his place were these four generals who took four different um, sections of the kingdom. Um, pretty clear what that, what that is referring to. But the vision isn't really just about that time because the, um, the, the angel says to Daniel, this is about the end. There is something happening here. And so what we get in this picture 
is that we see great kings. We'll see the king of Babylon rise, one of the greatest reigns that has ever been, and the Babylonian empire will fall. In its place comes the Persian empire. It will rise and have great power. It will also fall. In its place will come the Greek empire. It will rise and it will fall. And we know that after that, the Roman empire comes and it will rise and it will fall. Each of these kings of these were arrogant. Each of these powerful, great kings were arrogant. Each of these kings fell and were trampled, as the, as the text describes. And I think what Daniel is trying to say is that there are two things going on here. What we see as the earthly kingdom, as the earthly reign, as the earthly realm, where we do see these powerful countries, these powerful nations, these powerful rulers, these people who are, who are seemingly have infinite power, we see those happening because of what we see on earth. But there is something happening in the spiritual realm as well. And that is what is over in charge of all of the earthly realm. So we see this stuff coming, but that's going to rise and fall. There is a spiritual realm that is intermixed with this earthly realm that we are, we are living in. Uh, and we can see that spiritual realm if we look carefully. But what we see with our eyes and our ears and what we can read and what we can see is only the earthly. And so we get overwhelmed with that and, we, and that becomes our reality. But Daniel wants to point out that there's something else going on here. God ultimately is in charge. There's an evil spiritual um, forces and at work as well. But God is ultimately in charge. So that's the first part of the vision. Uh, what is missing in this vision is what is happening to um, what is happening to what is happening to the people of God. Where are the people of God? This is a message of hope. Somehow, this is a message of hope to the uh, exiles living in Babylon. And there's no mention of the people of God. But the second part of the vision um, touches on that. So let's read. I'm going to start in verse 8 and read the second part of the vision and then the interpretation of that. So the goat became very great. But at the height of his power, his large horn was broken off. And in its place, four prominent horns grew up towards the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came another horn, came a little horn, which started small but grew in power to the south and to the east and toward the beautiful land. It grew until it reached the host of heavens and it threw some of the starry hosts to the ground and trampled on them. It set itself up as great as the prince of hosts. It took away the daily sacrifice from him and the place of the sanctuary was brought low. Because of rebellion, the host of the saints and the daily sacrifice were given over to it. It prospered in everything it did, and truth was thrown to the ground. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to him, How long will it, how long will it take for this vision to be filled? fulfilled? The vision concerning the daily sacrifice, the rebellion that causes desolation, and the surrender of the sanctuary and of the host that will be trampled underfoot. He said to me, It will take 2,000 300 evenings and mornings. Then the sanctuary will be re-consecrated. Re now I'm going to go down to and, and read the interpretation of that in verse 22. The four horns that replaced the one that was broken off represent four kingdoms and will emerge from his nation 
uh, but will not have the same power. In the latter part of their reign, when rebels have become completely wicked, a stern-faced king, a master of intrigue, will arise. He will become very strong, but, by, but not by his own power. He will cause astounding devastation and will succeed in whatever he does. He will destroy the mighty men and the holy people. He will cause deceit to prosper, and he will consider himself superior. When they feel secure, he will destroy many and take his stand against the prince of princes. Yet he will be destroyed, but not by human power. The vision of the evenings and mornings that was given to you is true, but seal up the vision, for it concerns the distant future. I, Daniel, was exhausted. And I lay ill for several days. Then I got up and went about the king's business. I was appalled by the vision. It was beyond my understanding. So here we have this little horn. And I think that what Daniel, this vision, is really about is about this little horn. It's not about these kingdoms of Persia and these kingdoms of Greece. It's about this little horn and the devastation it has on the people of God. So we have a picture here of the beautiful land. And this little horn coming to power and taking control over the beautiful land. Well, the beautiful land is Israel. And in the middle of that is the capital, Jerusalem. And in the middle of that is the temple. And the people are in exile at this point. The Babylonians are in exile. But the hope here is that there is going to be a beautiful land again. They are going to return to their land. And we see that in Scripture. We see that in the Persian Empire, King Cyrus... And King Xerxes brought, let the people go back to their land. Through Esther, through Nehemiah, through Ezra, they rebuilt the city of Jerusalem. They rebuilt the walls. They rebuilt the temple. They started sacrifice in the temple again so that they could obey the law of Moses. They started Passover again and had their Passover. Um, and that is all there. But there's this little horn. There's this little horn that's going to arise, this little horn that's going to do great damage to the people of God, great damage to the beautiful land, great damage to the hope of Israel. Um, if we look in history, that little horn, is a, there's a historical fi uh, figure. One of these kings of gr the Greek empire is going to arise and take power, Antiochus Epiphanes. He comes to great power and takes over many of the territories of the other generals. And, um, the, the word epiphanies means God made manifest, and he gave himself that name. Antiochus, God made manifest. I am just like God. And what he did is he went into Jerusalem. He banned circumcision. No people could circ circumcise themselves. He stopped the sacrifices in the temple that were going on. He killed worshipers of Yahweh if they disobeyed that. He sacrificed a pig. On the altar, in the Holy of Holies, he sacrificed a pig in the temple, which was a great disgrace to the Jewish people at that time. And then he took a statue of Zeus and put it in the Holy of Holies in the temple so that they had to worship this statue of Zeus. He made war with the people of God, and he made war with God himself. He was arrogant, and he was powerful, and he had caused great devastation. That's the vision. That's kind of the, the meaning of the vision there. But the vision really isn't about Antiochus Epiphanes only. It's about the end of time. So what is God in the business of doing? 
That's a question I want to ask. What is God in the business of doing? Why would he allow these little horns? Why would he allow Antiochus Epiphanes to create such devastation on the, on, on the people of God? And how could this chapter 8 of Daniel be a message of hope to the exiles who are living in Babylon? The message is, there is going to be a return to the land, but there's going to be this ruler that's going to come and, and cause great harm to the people of God. How could that be a poss possibly a message of hope? So what God is in the business of doing is that God wants to establish himself with his people. And he allows certain things to come into his people's life to bring them back into this connection with him. God is in the business of establishing his people. He says, and this is a refrain you see over and over in the Old Testament, I will be your God and you will be my people. That is his goal, is to have that happen. And we see that through all the stories of the, uh, of the Old Testament, through the building of the covenant of, uh, with Israel. We see that with Abraham. And the covenant that God established with Abraham, when he went to Abraham, who was just a family, and he said to him, you are going to become a great nation. I am going to be your God, and your people will be my people. You see this later with Moses when he established the law on Mount Sinai with Moses and the people of God, where now the people have become a nation. And he establishes some of these rules and if you look carefully at those rules, some of them seem very strange that he would require his people to do this. But what he was doing is he's trying to form a people so that he is their God and they are his people and they are distinct. They are not like the other cultures around him. They are not like the other nations around them. They are a separate people and they are devoted to God and God, to Yahweh, and God is their God and they are his people. You see this with David. After uh, the people demanded a king, they, God eventually brought David. And, and David is considered to be a man after God's own heart. And it becomes clear that not only does he want people to, to follow his rules, he wants their hearts to be with him. And God was a man after God's heart. And he wants his people to be a people after his heart uh, so that, he, they, that God is their God and they are his people. And there's something distinct and special about the people. But there is something that they only devote in themselves to God. God is in the business of making this relationship with them. But then he exiles them. They have a country. They have a land. They have a kingdom. Other nations come in and, and cause damage to them. Eventually the northern kingdom gets exiled to Assyria. The southern kingdom gets exiled to Babylon. We have this Antiochus Epiphanes who creates destruction on the earth. There is this pattern of exile that God gives to his people. Why? Well, because of this relationship. God is no longer their God. They start to follow after other gods, whether very obvious gods like statues. Very obvious gods like statues, or whether there's more subtle gods, where God is no longer their gods. Subtle gods that we have in our, in our culture today. 
Um, and they're no longer his people because they start to adopt the um, traditions and the culture of the people around them. They want to be like the nations around them. Instead of being this distinct, holy people to God, they don't do that. So God allows exile. He allows exile from the land. He allows exile from the temple. And he allows even exile from himself, from God. But in all of this, what God is in the business of doing, and there's an overarching spiritual realm that is happening that we can't see. What he's in the business of doing is establishing his people. He wants to restore his people to himself. And so he's going to bring them back. He is going to reestablish them. He is going to restore them. And this is another refrain that he says over and over. I am going to put in you a new heart so that you will follow me. You are not going to be able to follow me on your own effort, but I will put a new heart in you. I am going to make you my people, and I am going to be your God. But we have these little horns. There's been many little horns in history. Um, Lawrence, a couple of weeks ago, preached on uh, Belshazzar, who was a grandson of Nebuchadnezzar, who forgot a little bit about what Nebuchadnezzar's convictions on the God of the universe were. And he took the very vessels that were found in the temple and he used them for an orgy and blasphemed God, putting himself up as an arrogant man who equal with God. God destroyed him. We have Antiochus Epiphanes, which I just explained, and what he did in the temple and with the, um, with the Jewish people in, in Israel. Later on, we can see the emperors of Rome with Nero and Titus doing great damage to the people of God, um, attacking Christians and Jews, and then um, going into Jerusalem and taking over Jerusalem and destroying the temple that has never been rebuilt. Um, we can think of more recently of, of, of Hitler and Nazi Germany and how that was an attack on the people of God and what God was doing. We have those. And we, we have little horns in our, in our world today. If we look around the world and we look at the news and we see things going on, and I won't name any names, but there are kings and there's rulers who are boastful, who are arrogant, who are powerful, and in many ways seek to harm the people of God. There are nations who are doing evil. There are rulers who are de de doing evil. There's cultural ideas in, the, in this world that are against God's plan for humanity. There's philosophies that are in our world today that go against what God has done. There are little horns that we can see around us. Antiochus Epiphanes is not the only little horn in history. We have them all around us. But what I think Daniel wants to say is it's just a little horn. Antiochus Epiphanes is a little horn. And all of these others are little horns. They rise. They have great power. But their power is not their own. Their power is allowed by God to, even to cause harm on his people. And to, even to cause harm on his name uh, but they are broken. Every horn is broken and not by human hand. The text says that it's not done by human hand. Their time is limited, 2,300 days. I'll allow that. But then 
the horn will be broken. So why does God allow these little horns and, uh, to, to do this to God's people? Because his people, the people of God, have no longer placed God as their God. God desperately wants his people to follow after him. Exile is a tool for God to do this, to bring people back to himself, even though it seems so bad at the time. And he wants his people to be his people. So we see exile, but then we see restoration. The people are exiled from their life with God because they have chosen to follow other things, but they're brought back to God so that he can reestablish within them a new heart. So what is God in the business of doing? He wants to establish his people as his people, but he also wants to bring about his kingdom his everlasting kingdom that he had planned from the beginning of time. His kingdom is the restoration of earth and the restoration of his people to himself under the authority of one true everlasting king. This kingdom is our hope. This kingdom is our rest. This kingdom is a place where God is our God and we are his people. And we, Twin Cities Church, and we, Christians throughout the world, are to be a part of this kingdom. So we have little horns who have power, have, have, have authority. But in the eternal, we have Jesus Christ, our king, who is not a little horn. Um, there are obvious differences between the little horns and Jesus but I want us to remind ourselves of some of these. So a little horn is given power and authority over a little. But Jesus is given power. I'll have to work on the, the mic later. Um, make myself better at that. Uh, but Jesus is given power and authority over everything. The little horn is boastful mocks God and claims authority equal to God, Jesus humbled himself and submitted himself to God the Father, but is given as a gift all authority over heavens and the earth. The little horn dismisses those who are of low estate and kills them, thinking nothing of it. Jesus lifts up those with burdens so they can take their burdens off and he can restore them. The little horn is allowed by God to bring people to repentance, to bring the exiles to repentance. Jesus is used by God to redeem the people and give them new hearts and new minds. The little horn's time is limited and lasts only a little while. Jesus is the everlasting king and will reign forever. The little horn will be eventually broken and his power will never return. Jesus is broken by sin and death, 
but rises again, overcoming sin and death for a final victory and a final kingdom that has all authority. Our hope is not ever in the little horn or in the destruction of the little horn. Our hope is in Jesus and what his final restoration is going to be. So, what about us? How do we respond to these little horns in this life? And how do we respond to what God is in the business of doing in our lives? Right now, 2017, God is in the business of establishing his everlasting kingdom where the everlasting king, Jesus Christ, who is far and above any horn that has ever existed, where Jesus Christ has authority over all. A kingdom where his people are his people and where he is our God. Right now, he is doing that. He is establishing that, despite the darkness that we see around us. So we live here in a place where the king is here. Jesus has won the victory, and he's here, and he is with us. He is given all rule of an authority. Jesus is sitting on the throne. We are there with him as his sons and daughters and members of the kingdom. If we could see this spiritual realm, if we could see this spiritual reality and what has already happened, we would have hope in the midst of the darkness. But there are little horns. There is evil. The victory of Jesus is not fully realized. We don't see that in every aspect. And we don't see the spiritual realm very clearly because we get distracted And our own hearts lose sight of God. Where God is no longer our God and we follow after other things and where we're no longer his people and we adopt the cultures and philosophies of the world around us. We fail. It's the people of God. We should hope in the final restoration of all things. We hope in a time where there will be a full restoration of all things, but sometime... Our hope is faint, and we just look at the world around us, and we don't see that. We need to have a little bit of balance in our life with this dilemma where Christ is king, but it's not fully done yet. On the one hand, it is done. We are there. We rest in God. Our victory is in Christ. On the other hand, it's not done, at least not completely. The full victory will still come. How do we live? How do we wait in the darkness that we see around us? A few months ago, I read uh, Casa Discipleship by Dietrich Bonhoeffer again, uh, and a very powerful book. When I was uh, uh, you know, late teen into my college years, I, I, that was perhaps the most influential book on me for me to, to really uh, bend my heart towards God. Um, but I reread that, and at the end of the book, he talks about what it means to live. Uh, and if you don't know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer... Uh, was, uh, wrote Casa Discipleship in the midst of Nazi Germany. And who's, the Nazi Germany's power would eventually execute Dietrich Bonhoeffer for, for what he stood up for. Uh, but he's writing this, and he's, he's, he's writing about how we should live as Christians in the midst of darkness. And this is a quote from him. He says, The New Testament... And this is talking about how, reading through the New Testament and what you, you can see. The New Testament simply calls Christians saints. 
It does not, as we expected, call them righteous, perhaps because that term hardly does justice to the gift they have received. And Christians are no longer called sinners in the sense of men who are still living under the dominion of sin. On the contrary, they were once sinners, ungodly, enemies of God, but now through Christ they are holy. As saints, they are reminded and exhorted to be what they are. What he is saying is that Christians are called saints. This is the separated ones, the holy ones. Christians are not called righteous, even though that's what we are. We have attained our righteousness through Christ. But for some, somehow, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was saying, that limits our view of what it means to be a Christian if we just claim righteousness. Christians are not called sinners because through Christ, we have become saints. So there's these three aspects of how we could see ourselves. Are we sinners? Are we righteous? Or are we saints? And Dietrich Bonhoeffer is saying that this, the New Testament calls us saints, and this is how we should live. As the righteous, if we think of ourselves as righteous, we have been judged already and we've been found innocent. But if we rest in that innocence and hope only in heaven, we got our ticket because we're righteous, then we miss the point of what we've been called to. As saints, we are separated from this world. By our calling, we are distinct people. But we are to walk in this world, in this darkness, in the life around us with hope. As saints, we are to walk in a manner worthy of the holiness of God in the here and now. But we are also to put our hope in the restoration of all things for God's holy people. We aren't, this is another quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, we are not sinners who are required to be holy. We are not sinners who are required to be holy. We are saints who are required to be holy. Seeing yourself as a sinner requiring to be holy means that you have something to obtain. Seeing yourself as a saint who is now to be separated and distinct for God sees ourselves as something different living in this world today. We ought to reflect what God has done in us, and we are a people of hope. So in the midst of our... Okay. In the midst of our uh, darkness of our times, in the midst of things that are going around in this world, in the midst of the little horns that we see throughout this world, what do we do? How do we live? How do we respond? Do we despair? Are we fearful of what's going on? then our hope is not in Christ. We are not truly putting our hope in Christ. Do we see a need to stand up against the little horns in defiance to bring, down, to bring them down, to destroy them? Then our hope is not in Christ. They are going to be broken, but not by human hands. Do we ignore the little horns and what God is in the business of doing and only think about heaven and where we are going to be one day. Then we miss our calling and our hope is not in Christ. Do we live as saints, as the whole already holy people of God? Do we live as saints, as a people distinct and separated 
for God in the midst of this world? Do we live as saints, living and walking and talking in a manner worthy of Christ? Do we live as saints with our hope in the final victory of what Christ, the restoration of all things that God is doing through Christ? Then that is where our hope lies.